Welcome to Students and Scholars, a literary podcast accompanying the course English 2620, British Literature After 1800, at Utah Valley University. I'm Dr. Zan Kamek. In this episode, our guest scholar, Jonathan Patterson, explores poetry from World War I. He explains why poetry was one of the primary media outlets for soldiers and citizens during this era and how it was politicized. He also discusses the broadening representations in our definition of World War I poets and why these works remain relevant over 100 years later. Jonathan Patterson is a doctoral candidate at Kansas University and plans to defend his dissertation on spatiality and the experiences of World War I combat poets later this semester. He has published work on this theme in several peer-reviewed journals, including Alicante Journal of English Studies and the Journal of Humanities and Cultural Studies. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, very good. Well, let's, let's jump right in. And I'm going to start with just asking you, what got you interested in World War I poetry in the first place? Like, what drew you to this? I, uh, I've always been very interested in spatial theory and, you know, things related to temporality, which is our relationship to time, and spatiality, which is our relationship to space. I really wanted to find a unique aspect of sort of spatial history that I could apply my sort of theories of space and place and more specifically like ruins. So when I read literature, ruins really stick out to me. Mm. And as I was thinking about this and revisiting uh, World War I poetry, I got the idea that, you know, trench space is functioning as a ruin. Uh, and so I thought that would be a nice marriage on top of so many other complex issues like memory studies and obviously trauma and the historical aspects. Right. Uh, I move forward with it and yeah, it's been really rewarding. Well, yeah. And there's, and there's so much to it. Like the, that world war one poetry is just an infinitely vast place to explore. And I think you're absolutely right. The idea of the space itself being really significant, especially for the, the soldier authors. Um, and, and, you know, the, the place from which they are writing is inherent to the poetry that they're writing. I, th- I think you'd be surprised uh, in my experience about just how much of this poetry that we have now actually was written in the trenches in mm. between battles. Uh, it, so it's not like they were fighting in the trenches and then went home, reflected on these experiences, and wrote their poetry. No, most mm-hmm. of this uh, comes from from trench uh, drafts, and that's been what is that's what's been sort of saved and documented in in museums. So they may have revised, there may have been some revision later on, but most of what you provided to uh, to the students from uh, the the soldier poets uh, that was written in the trenches, in the the sort of heat of the moment, so to speak. Yeah, and and that, I think that rawness really translates i mean like you can't you can't it's visceral it's very visceral i mean that's the word it's very uh very visceral uh, very intimate intimately detailed and that is really what i mean you can't sort of fake that stuff without having been there and uh and experienced it and so that's one of the things to look for as you're reading through the, the poetry you provide your students or just in general it's just that sort of that rawness uh mm-hmm. and you know the troopship I think it's just a, a perfect example of that, you know, grotesque, and it really moves you through that grotesqueness, but they're trying to uh, present an authentic representation of what it's like to be a soldier in the First World War, and we could talk about in, in a minute a little bit of just 
what the First World War introduced to this whole world of combat. There's so many things that they were unprepared for that they were about to, right. to meet. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's actually talk just quickly about about why poetry in the first place. Like World War One poetry, it's a very specific genre, and it is it's everywhere. It's prolific. Like, what is it about poetry that seemed to be like the outlet, the right outlet for so much of this angst? But there are a few things, uh, and and to really understand it, we have to sort of enter into that historical sort of period to understand how poetry is really sort of valued. You know, much of it is due to their exposure to poetry in their formal education. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, I was thinking back to when I was like a high school student, and I don't know if I was ever assigned a poem, you know, to read back then. Hmm. Uh, But but for them, it was a major part of their studies and assignments, uh, and it, it, it meant something to be a successful poet in the early 20th century. That's like uh, tantamount to being a, a star athlete, being a successful poet, which I know might sound weird, but again, you have to understand it uh, from that uh, time period in that context. Uh, many poets, uh, the two that I'm personally most familiar with are Edmund Blunden and Sassoon. They, these are guys who have published many poems in their, their school journals and their juvenilia poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very much in the traditions of Wordsworth and the Romantics. Um, the idea that you could look to nature as an escape or a reprieve from the daily cares one might have. And before the war, these two and others, they envisioned themselves as poets mm-hmm. who had to go to war and gotcha. how that uh, shaped or misshaped their ideas of romantic poetry is uh, you know, a, a vastly large topic. But the thing to keep in mind is they valued poetry. Being a poet meant something. And they wanted to do that as their profession before going to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, poetry is very expressive and it's driven by our emotions. Uh, and in many cases, as you know, seen by some to be therapeutic. I mean, even today, people go into prisons and other places of trauma and try to get inmates or uh, women who've been victims of assault or uh, are, are using poetry as a way to get children to work through things that they can't fully articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just a way of of uh, recording their own personal traumas and struggles and the way they understand and view the world. Also, you know, the movement imagism happened during mm-hmm. the war, First World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole purpose of that was focusing on a very clear representation or expression of an emotion based off of a particular image. And mm-hmm. so we do see a lot of that kind of influence through poetry. Um, and that, you know, it would take more space, so to speak, to, to to write out through, through, through prose. Um, yeah. Another cool little tidbit is like the leading newspaper that, uh, at the time, The Times, estimated that it received as many as 100 poems a day during August 1914. So that's just one newspaper in, in one wow. month, which was the start of the war. Um, but it's also easier to use poetry in a newspaper or in a recruitment ad, uh, which sure. we can get to in just a minute. It's more pithy, so, yeah. And it's kind of like music. We tend to remember things that, that rhyme, mm-hmm. things that are uh, measured uh, a mm-hmm. bit easier than in prose. But, but primarily, poetry was in vogue at the time, and it was really the best way, at least for these soldier poets, to convey the emotions that they felt. Things the, the sort of, it sounds so cliche, but the genuine horrors of war that they never knew to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, poetry seemed to be the best way to articulate their traumatic experience. I, and I hadn't really thought of it that way in terms of like the, the fact that poetry, because it's so fragmented is kind of the way I'm thinking of it. The fact that the lines are broken and that you don't have to articulate an entire thought. It's just, it's fractal. 
yep. that that allows for a lot more expression and um, creativity and rawness as well. Like the actual form of poetry, you can you, with Owen's Dolce et decorum est, the fact that it's quick, quick boys that you know the fumbling. Like he doesn't have to tell you what's happening; he's just splattering that in words on you, and you still get it. Um, and which is also kind of imagism as well. Uh, yeah, and I think too implicitly as a you know people who are reading poetry. We bring a lot to it. We fill in a lot of those gaps yes. that prose would provide. And more often than not, those those gaps that we fill in um, with our own sort of emotional response, those are going to be probably more accurate than, than we might think. Mm-hmm. It almost allows a sort of Rorschach experience. For the for the for the author and the and the reader to have an interaction that's that's really quite um, as you mentioned kind of kind of an intimate form um, of expression. I think also um, I love that you drew in the idea of of kind of drawing from romantic poetry. This idea of feeling. We, so in this class we did talk about Wordsworth um, oh, okay. and the Big Six and and beyond that in Romanticism. But we also read um, Hap by Thomas Hardy which Hardy fits within this time period as well. That, that idea of like the cruelness of just happenstance is just how visceral and raw this era is. And I think, I think that seeing that transition from, from Wordsworthian types yeah. of, of romanticism to this very cruel reality that, that, that nature doesn't solve all the problems is quite real. I mean, you keep using the word cruel and I can't think of a better word. It, it's genuine. It's just, it's cruelty. It's torturous. But one of the things, uh, like a chapter in my dissertation takes on London, who um, very much grew up in the tradition of Wordsworth. And so when you read, and so he envisioned himself not just as a poet, but as a, as a nature writer, a romantic poet who focuses on nature. And what's interesting when you read his poetry is that there's still this idea that one can look to nature, but when he looks to nature, is nothing but a, like a denial or a rejection of any type of reprieve or escape. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that research that you've done with Blendon um, and, and a little bit more about that kind of the spatial theories and the way that Blendon works within this romantic network. There are, in spatial studies, there, there are fast forms of ruination and slow forms of ruination. So slow forms of ruination might be like uh, the ruined cottage is a great example of slow ruination, things that happen over long periods of time. Uh, or as a result of environmental decay or overtaking uh, nature reclamation. And uh, fast forms of ruination would be like explosions and bombs. And fast forms of ruination are going to be those things that uh, exacerbate conditions of PTSD. And so, in other words, when I look at uh, PTSD or shell shock from the First World War, I connect the physical geographic surroundings that they're facing with their sort of symptoms of PTSD. Mm. So if you look at a guy like Blunden, who I said earlier was very much, he wanted to be a poet, but in the vein of Wordsworth and nature. And so when you read his poetry, it's not that he doesn't refer to nature. He does, but nature is, is charred. It's, it's exploded. It's, you know, and so it, it rejects this idea of, of escape and so i i expand on that basically trauma you can't separate trauma and the human experience to where those experiences occur right for someone like sassoon i i, I really like foucault's uh uh theory of the heterotopia the sort of space of otherness and mm. so you know that could be um places of otherness are like mental institutions oh, prisons yeah. 
but then I sort of link uh, the the trench space alongside those places of of otherness. Um, so basically, I use these theories to argue that the trench functions as a kind of ruined space mm-hmm. that lends itself to a trauma that's more difficult to overcome. Yeah, the space and the trauma are kind of inseparable narratives, but they that the trauma is always central to that larger narrative. We're dealing with legitimately traumatic, horrible, cruel uh, scenarios, situations, circumstances uh, that they never, again, uh, knew to fully prepare for. And so consequently, the poetry or rhetoric that's going to stem from the, the soldier poets is going to be dark. And that's a complaint that I get in the past when I've taught uh, water one poetry that is too dark, like, well, but look at what they are dealing with. They experienced it, you know? And so, yeah, it, it's really, we have to be careful not to distance ourselves from dark things. Mm-hmm. Again, you see that in the poetry itself, that it's, that it's trying to say, again, to, to mention Delta et decorum est, that, that Owen is like, we've been lied to, you know, there's been this, all this falseness that's been spread in, in terms of, what the ideology is, what does, you know, what does poetry, what does patriotism look like? And Owen is just like, I'm not having it. I will not be complicit in inauthenticity anymore. One of the major issues is that that what you're saying about Owen and the way the war was portrayed at home, for many of them became the ultimate betrayal because when they return home and people are just like, they're smiling and laughing, they're going on about their lives because they have been convinced that what they're doing, and we can talk about Jesse Pope if you want, is yes, really nothing nothing more than just a, like a football, meaning soccer match, you know? Mm-hmm. And that is what really set a lot of them off. But sadly, it also prompted, I mean, there were days where, uh, you know, there's uh, Australia did a great job um, documenting their suicides. And they mm-hmm. had days where they had over 10,000 people a day, soldiers committing suicide. Um, so that's a whole other dark aspect of the war that is caused by this sort of disillusionment, mm-hmm. you know, from sort of jingoistic materials that came from the war propaganda office in mm-hmm. which poets like Kipling and others were mm-hmm. hired to write these sort of romanticized views of war. Right. Uh, and so that only, you know, contributed, sadly, to these feelings of otherness and mm-hmm. ostracization. Um, it's it's wonderful that you kind of mention, like, Kipling and, and Jesse Pope, because um, Owen is talking at one point, like, in one of his drafts, it actually says to Jesse Pope, like, he's directly calling out someone who's romanticizing. And then um, Kipling is also, he's obviously, he, Kipling has always been a problematic author to begin with, but... Um, his own form of jingoism essentially sent his son to battle who had no business being on the battlefield. Um, and so his, his poem, my boy Jack um, is one where he's realizing that his son has died. But then even at the end of that poem, he still finds a way to be like, I've given my son to this cause. And it's like, ew. But I, but I think, you know, I think Owen's reaction would be, would, would, would highlight the cause. Like what was the cause? Right. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point too that you know during World War One and World War Two, people, you know, young men were committing suicide because they couldn't go or couldn't qualify mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. That's where we get kind of like the white feather phenomenon too, right? The white fe- feathers of cowardice. You know, cowardice, and you know, we can talk too about other people like Virginia Woolf, who is making observations about people like Septimus Warren Smith. Mm-hmm. He's a great example too of just you know he. 
know, because trenches for the most part are about the same spatial dimensions of a sidewalk. Mm. And so that's why, you know, if you look at Septimus Warren Smith, he's having so hard to walk down the street because he's ha- his trauma is causing this sort of effect where it's at one moment, it's the, the sidewalk, another, it's a trench. And so mm-hmm. navigating this sort of post-war environment is, uh, is it's, it's, it's exceptionally difficult. And they weren't really uh, empathetic to people at all, because as you said, just the former cowardice kids. It's just like a, it, it, it's a football match. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, um, we're, so my, my, in my class, we're going to be ta- talking about Mrs. Dalloway um, the week after. Um, so after this. And so it's something to, for us to be looking for is the way that Septimus Swarm Smith is reacting to this. Also the way that his doctors react to this. Cause, cause we are also obviously shell shock is a very real phenomenon that we get out of world war one. It's not that trauma wasn't happening before this, but we just didn't have ways to treat it. Yeah, no. So that's a great point. And again, something else we we often forget or don't don't know is, as you said, yeah, of course there was there was trauma before World War One, but perhaps never on this large of a mm-hmm. scale. And so to try to describe what was happening, they settled on the term shell shock, which we today know as you know PTSD mm-hmm. or combat related mm-hmm. PTSD. Um, but you know, I think also, it's also important to note that. Uh, World War One introduced chemical warfare, large-scale mm-hmm. explosion, machine guns. I mean, you had whole battalions charging with cavalry swords into yeah. direct machine gun fire. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so that's what I meant earlier on. But they had no idea what to really prepare for. Mm-hmm. But it's like the whole Kipling effect. Like this is this is glorious. Let's charge the, um, the soccer grounds and let's attack the ball. But then you have yeah. machine gun fire coming at you. I mean, the Battle of the Somme saw sixty thousand casualties in a single day. Mm-hmm. These are again large scale numbers and that mm-hmm. they were returning those even though lots of people died lots more lived and were returning it in, in masses with these symptoms of PTSD you also get this group of uh, the men with no faces yes. so a lot like you know World War one created the need for wheelchairs and for what we know plastic today surgery. Is modern day plastic surgery mm-hmm. all of that stemmed from from this time period in the, the book, if you're interested in that, you know, the men with no faces uh, touches on, on all of these things. So, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. point I think for our discussion today is that there was such a disparity between the actual experiences in the trenches in the war and the way it was depicted at home. Yeah. Uh, so we have, now we have poetry being used not only as a form of recruitment, but ultimately a, a tool for propaganda. There's also a political battle happening amongst the, the medical field uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, W.H.R. Rivers is a, is a famous figure that comes out of this, but doctors, they were charged with just getting them back on the battlefield as quick mm-hmm. as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what, that, that was their, their charge. And if they tried to go against that, then they faced uh, heavy yeah. penalties. So. Yeah. Well, and that, that kind of brings me to um, the, the Sassoon poem that we have uh, in the readings, and that's um, Dead Musicians. And, and, this one, um, obviously, because I love the gramophones, that's that's one that stands out to me. But it is also very most very overtly dealing with the mental health crisis that's happening with with this um, the speaker of the poem. And um, I don't know if you were aware of this um, that the gramophones were actually kind of a debated version of of treatment for shell shock. That it was like you know is 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 it kind of like music therapy helpful or is it just this loud jarring sound that we shouldn't put our soldiers in front of? And I actually recently um, within the past ten years there was a TV series um, called The Crimson Field, okay. um, 
And in the pilot episode, they actually so it's so it's happening at a at a field hospital in France, and they have a they have a soldier that's that's breaking down, and the head nurse brings him into the commanding officer's office. Commanding officer cranks up his gramophone. They start playing an aria from um, Madame Butterfly, and they leave. And the soldier kind of has this like release of just he starts sobbing and he releases. Outside, the nurse and the CO are talking, and he says, "Why does it work?" And she says, "I don't know, but it does." And so that 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 idea of I don't know, I don't know what's happening. It seems very relevant to, to what you're talking about with this medical confrontation. So for me, yeah, I mean, what what's interesting about um, dead musicians is, uh, you know, if we look at the sort of textbook definition of PTSD, it's the involuntary reliving of traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. And the gramophone in dead musicians becomes unique in that it functions as this kind of tool. So just for a quick example, like we just took a a long road trip and we listened to music in the car and and music has a tendency to sort of like encapsulate a moment in time. Like if you hear a song that Mm -hmm you listen over and over again in high school, that sort of memory nostalgia comes into play and it sort of momentarily transports you back to that that time period. It pulls you away from the, the present moment. So it's a very temporary fleeting moment of escape. And so I, I think that's what Sassoon is in, is in conflict with here. Mm-hmm. He likes the idea that this takes him from the immediacy of the moment but then once the gramophone, you know, and so the song breaks off. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a very violent, mm-hmm. visceral image. And he's alone. And he he's, it just re- further reminds him that the people he was thinking of are dead. That's why he says, for God's sake, stop the gramophone. And so I think there's a number of ways that you could approach these advanced complex topics through mm-hmm. through the gramophone that is just mentioned at the end of the Sassoon poem. Yeah. Well, and we also see this again in, in um, Mrs. Dalloway, Septimus Warren Smith, you know, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> he commits suicide, but right before he does so, he's staring at a gramophone. Um, it's this very, he's having this moment where he's thinking of his dead friend, Evans, and he's staring at this gramophone and he thinks Evans is in the room. And it's kind of this, it's it's very Sassoon-ish in a lot of ways. And then it's also the, um, we also see this repeated in another novel um, by Elizabeth Bowen called The Last September. Um, And she's talking about an Irish conflict, but there's a British soldier who has almost this exact Sassoon kind of experience um, because he's he's been transferred straight from the World War to an Irish conflict and he hasn't had time to recover. And he, and, and a gramophone breaks, it, it, it breaks and he like has this immense reaction to a gramophone breaking. And it's very clearly connected to his, his mental health. So we've been talking a lot about this largely in terms of kind of the the political moment, the medical moment that's happening here. Um, and we tend to, when we say World War One poets, there has historically been a little bit of a tendency to make this about the soldier poets, but they're not the only ones that are writing poetry. They're not the only ones that are impacted by the war. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of um, wonderful work going on to um, widen the definition of World War One poetry and who's invited and who's who's represented. Um, what has been kind of your experience with that as you have done your research? Well, I've uh, noticed that uh, a lot more women voices are mm-hmm. being put alongside the figures we've already mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. And um, Vera Britton, who wrote A Testament for Youth, based on our experiences as a nurse, 
but you also have like people like Alice Maynell and there are many others and, uh, and wives who are writing about poetry uh, over the loss of their, their, their husbands or sons. I mean, there were, there were villages in, in England that, that lost the entire male population. And in terms yeah. of, in terms of ruins, there's, you can still go and see these little ghost towns where mm-hmm. all the men were lost and the, you know, the women went to the, uh, the next larger city. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing that, uh, resonate more today, but you know, again, if you look to uh, you know anthologies, many of them came out in the '70s and so forth. They're going to be predominantly not only male voices, but combat soldiers. Whereas today, you know, we hit the 100th anniversary mark. There are mm-hmm. uh, anthologies coming out that are almost exclusive to to women, and so I think it just comes down to authentic representation of war experience. You know. Mm-hmm. If a soldier dies in battle, uh, then yeah, we have that particular isolated experience, um, but then we also have the ramifications at home. We can't minimize those experiences. You know, like Owen, his experiences matter, mm-hmm. but so does the so does the young woman who's at home pregnant and lost her husband. You know, how does how do and the other thing too is that how does she fit into society now? You know, it, it's they're really complex issues. One of the things that I find most powerful by widening out the representation is that you are able to see the culture and cultural and social traumas as well. Because like you said, it's it's children growing up without fathers. It's um, women who were nurses in hospitals and can never function the same. You know, it, it, it's not to say that, you know, one size fits all with war experiences. I mean, just a quick note about Jesse Pope. I mean, yeah. to what we were just saying, you know, I would add that her poem, War Girls, uh, highlights the work and service women did while men were away. And mm-hmm. only, you know, if we're sticking to Owen, Owen's critique, only Pope and other women like her can accurately articulate that particular experience. That's know? true. I think yeah. we think of the iconic, in, in America anyway, the iconic image of what is Rosie the Riveter. Rosie the Riveter. You know? mm-hmm. so, but again, yeah. you know, we that, that experience, experienced by women, you know, authentically needs to be voiced by the women who lived and experienced that. And yeah. during that time period, it should have accounted more for women and their experiences on the home front. Mm-hmm. Exp- expanding of representation. It doesn't have to diminish any one experience, but it gives us a better picture of, of this was a, this was an entire world that was traumatized this, but, but you know, by looking at, at Great Britain and its impact, that's just, you know, a small little nugget. So to kind of wrap things up for us, why is it still relevant for us to read World War One poetry? Why is this something that continues to be a conversation, not just in literary survey courses, but but beyond academia? Why is it still important? A lot of what stemmed from the First World War, a lot of the, you know, the politicization of, of war, the glorification of war, you know, how sweet and fitting it is to die for one's country. I think if you modernize just a little bit of the language, I mean, it sounds like something we could hear in present day. And so, unfortunately, it's it's still relevant. Um, Perhaps the the best way to approach World War I poetry is to view it as social commentary. Yes, Mm. it's happened over 100 years ago, but the things that Owen and others are saying is still applicable today. I think that in, in our sort of present day society, which we see in World War One poetry, we value and support the war fighter, the person that's over there fighting. Mm. And then to Owen and others' dismay, they get back and 
they they no longer fit within that category of warfighter and it's like well the lip service you know to respect mm-hmm. veterans and to, mm-hmm. again that that there's that, that novel and movie thank you for your service mm-hmm. it's easy to say but you know again we, we value the person fighting the war and then they come home and it, no one has the same amount of uh care and t- and too many too many fall through the cracks both families and and veterans. Yep, and you know, suicides, homelessness, all those mm-hmm. things that, again, I'm not saying it didn't exist before the First World War, but became sort of publicized and come mm-hmm. understood. Like mm-hmm. we understand uh, that veterans today are committing suicide or they're turning to alcohol and drugs to escape, not just what they experienced, then the sort of disregard they felt when they got they got homes. All those things are articulated in great detail in the post-war uh, literature that, that and it was a huge wave of literature mm-hmm. in response to the First World War. Yeah. And it, and we always can look back to it as, yay, look how far we've come, but let's, let's also just keep pushing forward because we haven't done enough yet. Always more to learn. Yeah. And I, I think that's the, the, the ultimate message that this is a sort of authentic representation of, of what happened as I, the author experienced it, or as I, the, the mother experienced it losing a husband or I, the young woman had to go into the factory, but it's also social commentary that there's still more that we can do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for, for being on the podcast. This was a really informative, lots of great information. Uh, this is super fun. Uh, like I said, if anyone ever has uh, questions or wants additional information, I can you know put together a reading list or at least give you things to search for. So there, there's plenty of stuff out there if you're interested. Excellent. Thank you for being such a great resource. Thank you. Thank you again to Jonathan Patterson for joining us on the podcast today. I look forward to discussing these topics and more with you in class. Join us next week with our next student-led podcast episode in which we discuss the stream of consciousness in Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway.